appropriately, I'm welcoming you to this week's chaotic edition of Spin Cycle um, because that is how it's starting. Sometimes we're chatting away in the studio here and I I forget that we are actually here uh, to communicate with other people and we have microphones to do that. (laughs) This is the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle and some of that chaos comes right into the studio with us, so... Buckle up. Tonight is one of those nights. We are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, as ever, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I am Jess Lilly, and in the studio with crikey reporter Charlie Lewis and contributing editor to the monthly Rachel Withers. G'day, team. Hey, Jess. It's been a while since we've... Uh, since the full gang has been together. Yeah. Since yeah. we've been together. Months, I'd say. It's lovely to see you, and I'm glad we've all bought snacks. <laughs> We've got chocolate covered, sugar covered and crisps covered. Pretty necessary at this point in a week like this. <laughs> I think so. Uh, we were going to be joined by David McBride this evening who is at the centre of Australia's latest whistleblower trial in this instance regarding information he leaked to the ABC from his time as an Australian Army lawyer in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, he's unavailable after his defence defence um, received quite a blow today. So instead, we're going to be chatting to a criminal lawyer, a wonderful uh, human and David's great friend, Eddie Lloyd, about the ongoing trial and issues around whistleblowers and the media in this country. So we'll be chatting to Eddie. Uh, in global media news, of course, there is still... Um, one uh, incredibly huge dominating event and uh, in news relating to journalism as of yesterday, investigations by the Committee to Protect Journalists have found that at least 42 journalists and media workers have now been killed since um, the uh, uh, Israel Israel Hamas war began in uh, Israel and Gaza. 42 journalists uh, equal 37 Palestinians, four Israeli and one Lebanese. Nine journalists have been reported injured, three journalists have been reported missing and 13 journalists have been reported arrested. Um, And once again, it's the highest number of journalism fatalities of any conflict since the Committee to Protect Journalists started keeping records. And Charlie, there's someone in particular that um, that you really wanted to, to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, strictly speaking, uh, I, I suppose his his role covered a few things. Strictly speaking, his his major role was that he's. Um a nephrologist, so a kidney specialist. Uh, our listeners may or not be um, familiar with his name, uh, a man named uh, Dr. Hamam Alo, uh, a nephrologist at the Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the, the biggest uh, hospital in Gaza City. It's just been um, raided by um, Israeli forces. Uh, in, an, in an air raid that was separate to that this past um, Saturday, uh, Dr. Alo and uh, three members of his family um, were, were killed in an airstrike uh, when the when the home that he and his family were sheltering in was um, hit. Um, Dr. Lowe contributed to Crikey's coverage um, of the health crisis that was unfolding in Gaza um, uh, a few weeks ago, um, as he did for many, many um, uh, media outlets around the world, uh, including the Australian CBC, um, uh, Democracy Now!, um, as I say, his primary role was as a doctor uh, in in a war zone, and, and as, as such, he 
he had to bear witness to um, some incredibly harrowing circumstances and, and make some decisions that I, I wouldn't work, wish on my worst enemy, um, which is an incredible act of bravery in itself before you even consider the obvious uh, physical risks to his own his own safety. Uh, it's actually very noteworthy, and it's been shared around a lot since since his, his death, that an interview he gave to Democracy Now! in the US about two weeks ago, uh, he was asked why he didn't flee the area and head south, um, given the, the risk to his safety, and he said, well, if I go... Who treats my patients? Um, I didn't study medicine for 14 years so that I could think about my own life and not theirs. Um, it would be laughable for me to claim him as any kind of colleague, but I do feel very privileged that Crikey got to have some small association with him uh, and his incredible moral and physical courage. And I just want to send my, my deepest condolences to his friends, his remaining family and his colleagues. Oh, well said, Charlie. Thank you for sharing, Charlie, and I think... You know, um, once again, the incredible job that um, reporters and, um, you know, there are so many people who are becoming media correspondents over there. I mean, mm. I've, I've got to say, I've, I have been listening to a little bit of ABC Mornings uh, on the radio. <laughs> Sorry, Triple R. Um, when, sometimes when I'm in my car and um, even, I think it was even this morning or yesterday morning, um, Raf Epstein also had an uh, interview with a, a doctor in one of the hospitals there. It wasn't uh, Ashifa, but it was another one. And, you know, the fact that, that, they, that these people are doing this incredible work under the most yeah. difficult circumstances but also feel compelled to, um, to talk to international media at any opportunity just so that that there are ears listening, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that there are that there are there's some there's some sort of witness to what is what is happening for them. I suppose it is. You mentioned before, obviously, what what, what a, a an awful deadly conflict this has been for for journalists, but it's also one of the worst ever for aid workers. Yeah, the and UN has just workers. clocked a uh, mm. hundred of their aid workers have been killed in this finding. It's it, as you say, it, it's it's it takes um, fortitude on on a lot of levels to do that kind of work, and we can only stand in awe of it. Um, still on this, um, on the war, uh, I think it's always interesting when someone from outside the bubble can hold up a mirror to the standards we have been conditioned <laughs> to expect or, or at least um, sort of um, tolerate from our news media. Uh, and so it was early this week when Francesca Albanese uh, uh, rode into town to deliver a searing address to the National Press Club, um, the other Albanese, uh, in which, according to former SBS newsreader Lee Lin Chin, she ate and she left no crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> um, Francesca Albanese is an international lawyer, academic, and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. She was on Q&A uh, on Monday night... Um, with uh, Mark Liebler and who else was on it? Um, uh, Nasser Mashni oh, yes. um, from the Palestinian uh, Advocacy Network. That's right, uh, Tim Watts. Tim Watts, Tim Watts the, the yeah. Labor uh, Junior Minister for, for Home Affairs. Mm -hmm. and, and Dave Sharma. Yes. Former um, member for Wentworth, the Liberals, yeah. The next day she um, addressed the National Pre Press Club and, boy, did... <laughs> she set the room a quaking. There was um, 
you, you could feel, I mean, it's not often that I get text messages, multiple text messages of a Tuesday morning saying, are you watching the National Press Club? <laughs> Tune in now. Uh, but so it was. Um, it was really interesting, I suppose, um, the way she kind of – she didn't deflect when questions were put. There were a lot of – I think the way she answered questions demonstrated what we uh, have come to expect from journalists in – a lot of news journalism in this country. And a lot of it is about trying to uh, catch people out or, you know, fire a little gotcha or just be quite – just sort of um, – there's a real sort of combative nature to questioning mm. rather than it being points of inquiry. A lot of questions really were delivered to her as a, as a kind of a um, challenging her statements, challenging her record, challenging how she delivered certain information. And some of her responses were just <laughs> like, she literally just said, you know, on one, in one example, I cannot answer the question because you're basing it on something that has been mis- misreported and extremely d- distorted. In another, um, in another situation to Tom Connell, who was um, hosting uh, the press club, I beg your pardon, I don't mean to be rude, but can you really keep a straight face as you ask me this question? Uh, to Daniel Hurst from The Guardian who tried to call her out on using the word domination and really just honed in on this one mm. tiny thing. You know, she really <coughs> basically sort of pulled that apart and, you, you know, gave him a very kind of um, factual <laughs> and detailed response as to why it was an accurate word and it's just not something that we're used to seeing. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is worth going and watching mm. on iView or on YouTube um, but, you know, especially the way, as you say, she she put up a mirror to the Australian mm. media and exposed how ludicrous some of the the ways we go about journalism in this country are. And, I mean, we've seen it uh, from time to time at the press club. I think the last time we saw someone just rip journalists apart was uh, Paul, <laughs> Paul Keating. Keating. Oh, yes. that's right, yeah. Um, and he did he did similarly to a couple of our mm. nine journos. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean... It, Francesca Albanese is an outsider. She doesn't know the Australian media. She doesn't know, mm. you know, the personalities who are asking her questions. But mm. she she just would take the questions and and find like the sort of the premise they were they were basing it on that wasn't mm. necessarily true. And she just, I mean, she just didn't give a damn. She, mm. well, she just... I, 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 again, I think part of the part of the outsider um, element is. There's no there's no relationships to cultivate with no. the mainstream media in Australia for her. She's not got to make sure that she can stay on their good side for any reason. She's just there to do a job and raise awareness of the issue that she is, you know, a, a, a subject expert on. And by the way, I mean, I think, you know, one thing we should always make clear is that, you know, it is obviously a very, very contentious topic and it's a, it raises a lot of emotion. And, and she would have to have expected that her views would be, you know, it's very appropriate that someone's views are, are seriously interrogated on these questions. But it was some of the, as you sort of said, some of the premises of the questions were were, were baffling. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was someone on Twitter who took these three questions in particular that, that Jess mentioned um, and and clipped the, the question and answer. And, yeah, I mean, taken, obviously you're not watching the whole thing in context, but those really blew up because people... I think really appreciated having someone come in and um, kind of, you know, show 
just how flawed these types of questions and, and how narrow are. Na- and, mm. and, and the effect that they the warping effect they have on on kind of a sens- sensible debate about a very serious issue yeah i mean i think uh, I, I don't like to sing- single anyone out and i do want to say that i think <laughs> da- daniel has single reporting, <laughs> well I, I, th- that was the one that really did <clears throat> stick with me because i think that is, one's been viewed the most times as well I mean, we have to remember that he's a he's a defence and foreign affairs correspondent and he's speaking to someone whose entire subject area is the human rights situation in the occupied territories of Palestine. When she uses a word, he he, he says, you, you've really tripped me up with the use of the mm. word domination. Um, that that he, he, he would have to know that who he's speaking to in the context in which he's talking. Mm. And it it just struck me as a moment that that sort of, so much of modern politics is just the the taking of offence as a political position. The, yes. the look out for p- problematic language, when actually you could actually inter- you could interrogate her and take her very seriously and ask her some very serious searching questions on important things, rather than reaching for that particular area. Yeah, especially when she sort of had the legal definitions at yeah, her fingertips. At her fingertips yeah. I mean. W- we had an interesting conversation in our group chat that night, I think, about this these particular questions because, of course, Twitter was uh, really, really going off. Um, a lot of, you know, people enjoying kind of the humiliation of the journalists. <laughs> Other people then saying, you know what, there is something wrong that we expect sort of journalists to be you know, jacks of all trade and, and these people are not equipped to be covering, um, a you know, a, a conflict like this and trying to grapple with, you know, international law that they've never... I mean, some of them are specialist reporters, but mm-hmm. many of these journalists are sort of suddenly having... It's sort of like how we all had to become experts in um, in epidemiology um, <laughs> and, and then mm-hmm. and now in... Um, the Geneva Convention. Um, And so, you know, I don't necessarily agree with this, but there were some people expressing a lot of sympathy uh, for the journalists who are just out of their depth. I mean, I I personally am not across the (laughs) Geneva Convention, you know? Well, I I guess, I mean, I think that's, you know, there there is probably a certain amount of fear among journalists for getting it wrong and for, you know... um, what words what words are okay and what words aren't okay. And so it's easy to focus on the minutiae and get sort of into where, where you feel comfortable. And I think we've seen in the history of our, you know, recent examples through the debate around the voice, um, political all election coverage recently, there is this kind of fallback position of journalists to try and... This, to try and get a story in the moment, to yeah. try and trip someone yeah. up, to you want try that gotcha. and yeah, to get a gotcha, and then that you can write about that rather than actually mm. come yeah fully prepared with all of the issues and all of the mm. detail. Um, but but there is also something. I mean, there was one thing that was quite controversial about you know she said she referred to. Um, uh, the Q and A the night before that she was on, she said um, um, Palestinians are too easily um, blamed, as my friend Nasser Mashni said yesterday, while in front of an execution squad, mm. is what she referred to. His... I, I have to say, I, I did think that was probably a bit of a poor. Cho- that was a ch- poor choice of language. That wasn't yeah. a helpful phrase to use in the context. Yeah, and her point was that she the the that. 
um, NASA on Q&A was really, you know, the one who got copped a massive grilling. Yeah, yeah. Um, as opposed to um, any of the other... Um, you know, as as opposed to any of the other people on the on the on the panel, you know, Mark Liebler, for example, um, and I suppose you know there w- there was there is that challenge as well of you know um, not wanting to be perceived, you know, and that, that's a huge issue with the ABC as well, not mm. wanting to be perceived as biased in any way, not wanting to be perceived as um, being too soft on any position um, and, and that's where, you know, you end up. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it was interesting. I was doing a bit of Googling while that episode of Q&A was going on um, and there was a piece in The Australian in, in like, Media Diary or something like that um, revealing that... Um, sort of the the Zionist Federation and the Australian Jewish Association had lobbied quite hard for him to be taken off that panel. Oh, interesting. Um, And there was another guest as well who they lobbied to have taken off who did pull out for different reasons. Um, But I then watched that Q&A episode with that sort of in mind that um, the the ABC had been lobbied quite hard on this um, Mm. and it felt like a bit of an overcorrection because the... News Corp has been running this campaign against Nasser Mashni for the past few weeks, digging up things from his past. Um, well, he has been working his, hard. Oh, yeah. But, like, <laughs> you know, d- digging up an old criminal conviction, for oh, example, yeah, and, um, and things he said on his podcast or guests who have been on the podcast with him have said. Um, and so he got grilled over basically a lot of the things that he's been in the Australian, that the, the Herald Sun and the Australian have been writing up. Mm. Um, and I feel like because of this pressure the ABC was getting from these organisations and and we are aware that these organisations do exert a lot of pressure uh, on media outlets um, that, yeah, they, they felt like they had to then grill him on every issue they, that they, they'd they, taken. They weren't going to be accused of not raising the questions they've been raised in, in the News Corp papers. I yeah. mean, just to um, put some um, sources to that as well, um, because I know that there, as as we know, there's, um, you know, again, a lot we need to be able to uh, put some sources to what we're saying. There was also a piece in um, Michael West Media today um, that revealed, that talks about this and talks about the lobbying, um, the lobbying from the Australia, Israel, and Jewish Affairs Council over the years, and mm. um, they have um, they published a document um, from uh, Mark Liebler, who was on the Q and A. He was one of the panelists on Monday, and it does talk about how they do lobby the ABC. There was an example in the document that um, talks about the advocacy of the AIGAC, how it uh, extends to represent- representations to the ABC. Um, they talk specifically about um, back in... This is going back um, many years now when um, Sophie McNeil was uh, a correspondent, Middle Eastern correspondent, and it quotes, um, it quotes the document saying she should never have been given this posting by the ABC. She was ideologically attached to the Palestinian cause. Um, don't believe the ABC would send her if they'd known what they were, um, they were going, but they won't. They wouldn't create a controversy by pulling out. That said, our representations, both public and private, undoubtedly moderated her behaviour because she knew she was mm. being watched. And that was also um, something that was supported um, by... Um, 
uh, also former chorus, uh, ABC correspondent um, uh, John, John Lyons, mm. uh, and he wrote two books, Dateline Jerusalem, Journalism's Toughest Assignment and Balcony Over Jerusalem, where he, sp- he very specifically talks about the pressure um, that he was put under um, and other journalists were put under. I mean, there's an article in The Guardian um, from six years ago when his book came out, which is headlined um, Pro-Israel Advocates in Australia, targeted three journalists, a new book claims, which is about John Lyons' book. So, you know, it was, again, and it talks about Sophie McNeil and Peter Cave as well as John Lyons. So these aren't, you know... It's all very broadly covered. Mm. Um, and, and I think that sort of comes full circle with Francesca Albanese. If, if that pressure is constantly being exerted to mainstream media outlets, then certainly the overall, um, you know, the, the overall effect would be a very cautious media. Yeah. And so someone, when someone like Francesca Albanese comes in and just completely blows it up, it, it, it feels like dynamite. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly add, speaking of sources, I just wanted to correct what I said yes. um, in terms of Good. this piece in we, the Australian. The organisations e- um, exerting pressure on the ABC over this episode were the Executive Council of Australian Jewry and the New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies. Um, so the Zionist Federation was represented on the panel, but it was these two other organisations uh, that wrote this letter. Um, and I, I, I note that... Um, they warned that without context or an assurance to challenge any such views, the show would likely lead to a highly prejudiced, false and misleading broadcast. So, yes, <laughs> part of the challenging was part of was the pressure that we've been talking about. And I think, you know, that pressure is exerted, obviously, you know, from, from all directions. It doesn't just come from one direction, but it is going to, it, if that pressure is, is sustained, it is going to have an effect on the... Uh, on the um, narrative. Um, I think we wanted to quickly mention, I think we we're, we need to wrap this up, but Charlie, did you want to mention that um, that running list that Crikey is keeping of journalists oh, yeah. who have yeah, been yeah, yeah. on um, junkets to either Israel or Palestine, predominantly Israel, but also Palestine? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's um, our new um, media reporter, uh, Danielle Saeed. Who was um, a guest of the who's, show who's a, a few I, I would say I would say a friend of the show already. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he's been doing a really wonderful kind of running and constantly updating piece about, um, yeah, just the, 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 the vast number of, of, of media figures in Australia um, who have um, gone on basically what I've called, you know, junkets or educational tours of, of Israel and Palestine, um, largely, as you say, predominantly from uh, at, as guests of Israel, but also a smaller number, including um, Cracky's politics editor, um, Bernard Keane, have gone um, as part of Palestinian delegations. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because some... I'd, it's 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 one of those um, areas that you know a, a lot of governments do it, but this is one of those ones where it's often not made all that clear, or it's um, not disclosed in in co- coverage, and it's it's a very tricky area in terms mm. of when you have to disclose that you've gone on that, or whether you've sourced your information from trips like that, and what impact it would have. You know, a lot of journalists would try and argue that, of course, they might go on a trip like that, but they can that doesn't affect yeah, yeah, their absolutely. ability to report. You know. <laughs> I just can't believe anyone would, you know, not that anyone's ever ever offered me a junket to Israel, but <laughs> when you then report something as um, mm. as journalists do, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I want to name names, but, um, you know, a journalist recently uncovered something that 
uh, NASA Mashni had said. And then people immediately went, oh, looks like you went on one of those junkets to Israel. And it just undermines your reporting, mm. even if it didn't mm. influence you. Yeah, yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. So we've talked at length on this show before about the appalling state of whistleblower law in this country. And this week we have seen a very disappointing development for Australian democracy with the commencement, with the commencement of the trial against military whistleblower David McBride who faces charges over the alleged leaking of material later used by the ABC to expose Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. This trial comes despite many, many, many calls for the government to drop the prosecution. Uh, And we saw a couple of motions this week put up um, that Labor voted down to again drop the prosecution. So with us to discuss the trial, we have Eddie Lloyd, an accredited specialist in criminal law who has been practising criminal law since 2011. She's a former politician and Lismore City Councillor, a passionate advocate for social justice and drug law reform, and, as she puts it, fluent in doublespeak. Eddie has been attending McBride's trial in Canberra in her capacity as a friend of McBride, and we are so pleased to have her on. Eddie, welcome to the show. A total badass, in other words. A total badass. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for joining us after... Um, what we are sure has been a uh, <laughs> draining yeah, couple of days. Um, yeah. I was yeah. wondering if you could start off by giving us sort of the spark notes version of what David McBride is on trial for. What did he leak and why did he leak mm. it? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity because I guess what gets um, said in court isn't always the entire story and that's been a pretty frustrating hearing the Crown kind of summarise um, David's conduct as he he had no duty to disclose to the media but uh, and just, you know, you know, conveniently omitting all of the other steps. So back when he was hired as a lawyer for his legal expertise, he was a practising barrister, um, had a couple of degrees, one in Oxford, so he was very well educated in the law and that's what you needed to get the job Mm. at the ADF as a legal officer. And um, so he did two two tours of Afghanistan and he started to notice that things weren't being done correctly. So he could see that the procedures were, you know, um, systemically being ignored, you know, about how to investigate. And people were, you know, just after 2012, I think, after the Ben Roberts Smith thing, he says he noticed a huge change in how things were being done um, at the ADF. And there were people being scapegoated that he felt shouldn't have been investigated and other people kind of getting to get away with murder, probably. Um, And so he just started kind of exploring that and he's, you know, discovered that there are some very, very significant systemic cultural issues um, and procedural failures going right to the top. And I think that's what this is actually all about. It's the people at the top um, that, um, you know, that are are being protected in this trial. And that's probably why Mark Dreyfus isn't, um, the Attorney General, isn't intervening at all. So he um, discovered all this. He prepared quite a large um, dossier, very carefully considered, as a lawyer would do. And... um, took that to his um, higher-up in the ADF, which was the correct thing to do. I think he made two internal complaints. Um, No, they didn't want to know anything about it. And so then he went to the AFP, the next step, you know, right to the AFP. No, they didn't want to 
know anything about it, but then they turned around and raided, you know, then he gave it to the media, of course, to the ABC, and we're all aware of the Afghan files um, and what they contained. Um, what, he, what he gave to the ABC, as I understand it, was a lot a lot more and about the systemic um, failures because, you know, of course, you know, you can, you know, make a report about something you witness, a war crime, a terrible war crime happening and hopefully that report is investigated and that person is tried. But, of course, that's just in uh, the real world. We're not in the real world anymore and that hasn't happened. Um, but uh, David McBride did so much more. He really had a look at the whole system and all the failures, and he's someone who's an expert <laughs> and able to forensically see all of this stuff. So his, what he discovered was quite big, and, um, yeah, that, and I guess that's why the ABC went with the story and did their investigations, and um, the Afghan files came out of that. And then later on, the British inquiry was called because of all of mm. the... Um, talk in town about um, these war crimes and uh, that has validated um, David a lot. You know, all the things he said about the systemic issues and that that's what they're looking at reforming now. So he's been validated um, by the Burton um, inquiry, but um, instead of um, getting a medal himself, like some people get when they commit <laughs> war crimes, and that's the gaslighting mm. message of the whole um, mm. surface today, is that it's okay to do that. You, you probably get promoted or a medal, but if you disobey in order to do something that you think is unlawful, uh, yeah, off you go to face, uh, you know, and under the term of prison. So, it's interesting yeah. um, that, you know, the getting the medal refers to another <laughs> law um, case recently that was uh, that went yeah. to trial for very different reasons. But once again, it was the, um, you know, the reporting, investigative reporting that got it to where, to got, that exposed it in the end. I'm interested, Eddie, thanks. It's Jess here. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, do you know, uh, without speaking to David's kind of state of mind, when what compelled him... Because for a lot of people, taking this to their own higher-ups, especially when you've been through, um, you know, army training and, and you... Um, you follow orders and you follow the, you know, chain of command uh, and and getting rebuffed and then taking it to the police and getting rebuffed. That would be enough for a lot of people to say, you know what, I tried and I'm just going to get on with with my life. What, what compelled him so to then sort of knowing that there isn't any real, there isn't a really sort of solid kind of um, protection for whistleblowers in this country? What compelled him to take it to the media? Well, when everything else failed, in short. Um, but uh, morally, I, I think he's got a very strong moral compass. Mm. Um, you won't meet many people like David McBride. Um, you're looking for something that's not, you know, some kind of flaw in his character, but um, he is just one of those people. He's just an upstanding person. He was a true believer. Like, mm. he, he was in the Liberal Party. Like, he ran for <laughs> Liberal in a seat. He, then he ran to Labor. And, like, he has been a true believer his entire life, believing in the system, believing in the courts, believing in the government, believing in all of that stuff. So what he saw kind of changed his world and shattered, you know, his reality. Mm. And... Um, He's a man that's on a he's on a mission, and um, he wants things to be fixed, you know, and he wants it to, the wrongs to be to be righted. And uh, he's yeah, most people would have given up by now. I don't know how he does it. Um, he's um, incredibly strong and resilient. But I know that this week has been very difficult, and today especially has been really challenging for him. And um, 
you know, he's really facing the worst of it now. It's a reality. Um, but still, he's there. He's laughing. He's smiling. He's um, talking to all the supporters that come. He's, With his um, beautiful dog. <laughs> oh, Jakey. Yeah, Jakey's just so beautiful. Jakey's so beautiful. He's got his own um, Twitter account now. He's trying to get a good shot of him doing a poo at the moment. That's been quite He's got performance anxiety. <laughs> for, lis- for listeners who are one in front of me. For yeah. listeners who aren't familiar, um, David is able to take his um, support dog into court every day, um, which you know, which talks a little bit to how stressful and full on this experience is. Uh, Eddie, it's Charlie. Right. He's got PTSD. Yeah, he's yeah. got PTSD from you know mm. not not seeing things necessarily um, like out on the battlefront, but the PTSD, as I understand, is from the cover-ups and the gaslighting, mm. and he got sent to a psychiatrist at one point an army psychiatrist who told him he was mad, you know, and it was all in his head. Like, this was all in his head. He just got so severely gaslit. And so Jakey's his, um, you know, little PTSD dog, and he's an amazing, amazing dog, and um, it's good that he can have him in the trial. I don't know that he'd be able to take him into custody, though. Mm -hmm. But, look, the ramifications of this are just... I'm still in shock, to be perfectly honest. I can't even believe it's happening. I feel like I'm in, like, an Alice in Wonderland um, episode. It's so bad. It's so bad for me as a lawyer as well, and just seeing the legal profession traditions just get thrown out the window, and we haven't even... I haven't even started to kind of dissect that, but basically the the point that's been made today is that you you have to, you know, because lawyers got all these legal duties and the most, the paramount duty that every lawyer has when they get admitted and they have to, you know, do all the ethical things is the paramount duties to the court, which is also the public, and it's to the, um, you know, affected effective and proper administration of justice and that's what he was doing by putting his complaints through and keep keeping on the entire time david believed because he's a believer and why wouldn't you you meant you brought up to believe that the government are good and you know there are laws that protect people and bad people go to jail and good people stay out here he believed that under the whistleblower laws that he would get some protection because you're allowed to go to the media if you've made a complaint already and nothing's happened or they've been too slow to investigate you are afforded protection so he was the entire time holding onto those documents, wanting this to eventually be investigated. And that's why when the AFPC, the documents are his house, he hadn't thrown them away, you know, like you might Eddie, do sorry if you had to just interrupt for one legal. second. We are talking, we've sure. talked, we've talked a few times about um, the terrible developments in the last couple of days. Can you fill mm. us in on where the trial is at at the moment? Because it is a live trial sure. as we speak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so today um, they appealed um, His Honour Mossop's decision on the duty definition. Um, And so I think on Monday they're back. So tomorrow is a day off, which is good. And Monday we're back and the jury is going to be empanelled. And um, it's going to be very difficult um, for him to be found not guilty in these circumstances because... You know, what, what were the developments this week? Um, what was yeah. – because it devastated his defence. This was sort of his main mm. defence, wasn't it, the duty defence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the defence that he had was that, you know, his, his duty as a lawyer, he's got a duty to the public, and his duty when he took his oath um, to become uh, a legal officer, to be part of the ADF, there's also that – Judy, and that was a, a lot of the argument was about whether that meant just to the king or if it meant the public. And it's mm. you know for, forever and a day it's been the public, but suddenly it's not. Suddenly it's about um, 
uh, just the king, you know, and serving serving your boss, um, the ADF boss. So this is. Yeah, very, very frightening because it's so, difficult to see what kind of defence he might be able to put up now. Yeah, so just to be clear for listeners who might not be familiar with the detail, this week um, the judge was determining whether the jury could hear um, David's defence, uh, 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 that he had a duty of care to the public and it was in the public interest to release this information and the judge ruled that no, David's duty was to follow the chain of command within mm. the army is that right i don't want to i don't want to yeah. oversimplify no, that's right. it no, that's right no 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 that, it is actually very simple it is that's your duty you have to obey your commander even if the order that you're being given is unlawful in your mind um and a war crime no you are uh, you must not disobey you have to your duty to the army um trumps any other duty and it's doesn't involve the public or considering what the nation might think and I think that's just wrong, completely it's wrong and I think eventually... Yeah, it's crazy, it's sort of well, he, he will succeed. Yeah. There's yeah. this famous thing called the uh, Nuremberg Trials I don't know if you've heard <laughs> of it. That's right I mean, well, they, Stephen, I just said the word, it, yeah. he said the word in court. Yeah. Um, Eddie, it's Charlie here, thank you so much for joining us um, oh, during what's obviously a very you very difficult time. Um, I, I mean, I, I, to, to sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about where this fits in the wider um, sort of scheme of things in terms of whistleblowers and their protections in this country. As, as, you, as you sort of have alluded to, the, the, the government could, with a stroke of a pen, cease the, bring this all to a close, as they did quite soon after they were elected with the case of the uh, intelligence agent, um, Witness K, and his lawyer, Bernard Clary, who'd been pursued um, by the previous government for very many years. Do you see any legal difference between those two cases, or is it purely a political concern? I mean, do you, do you see any difference between the two cases? Look, I don't know too much about Bernard Collieri's case, but I, I will say that I think in David's case he has um, he has done a lot a lot more in terms of helping the nation um, in, in the public interest to um, you know find, to, to discover all of these sevenfold failures within the ADF and and report them, hoping that 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 would be fixed. Um, really huge issues and you know I think what it's important to remember that if a lawyer doing their legal duty can't even get protection under the whistleblower laws then who is going to be able to be protected and the biggest problem with the whistleblower laws isn't even so much the whistleblower laws themselves it's this superpower that the attorney general has that he did in david mcbride's case um and bernard Collieri's case Mm -hmm. to jump in at the 11th hour Mm -hmm. and claim public immunity interest over all of the the evidence that was the basis for asking for protection the need for protection they just came in and blacked it all out so you know that's an extraordinary power, and I think it's been used very badly in in, in these whistleblower situations. Um, and I think it's about covering up other people that might be dragged down should the truth actually come out. Yeah, I, look, I remember that day that um, the new Albanese government dropped the the Witness K uh, Bernard Cleary mm-hmm. prosecution, and just the mm-hmm. sort of public adulation they got for that decision um it is interesting how they pick and choose based on the circumstances i i had a question around um we were obviously as you know um we were potentially going to speak to david mcbride um tonight um and we were sort of you know a little a little um apprehensive about it because we didn't want to do anything to prejudice the trial in any way um but we noticed that david is doing 
quite a bit of media. Um, you know, he has he's a very um, public-facing whistleblower at this point amid this campaign to have um, the the Attorney General drop the prosecution. Is is there sort of um, still some hope that by um, making this sort of public campaign that, that the government could still intervene or is, is all hope lost on that front? No, look, I don't think he's a man of great faith. I don't think he's mm. ever going to lose hope. He's going to, you know, lick his wounds and get back up and fight again, I think. But, um, you know, he's... Um, He's been doing media for five years. I mean, I guess it's been wonderful, this trial, in a way, because there's so many more people aren't seeing what's happening. And um, it's such a disgrace, and there's so much outrage about what's happening to him. So, you know, I guess, you know, the more media he does, hopefully more supporters will come on side and more pressure can be put on the government, because it's only after kind of media pressure sometimes that the government will do anything. I mean, it's just outrageous. So I've there's just not many people. I can't see many people supporting what's going on at the moment. So, mm. I yeah, mean, we, we still hope, yeah. And there's been talk of, you know, whistleblower um, protection reform for such a long time, but the wheels seem to be grinding so slowly and it's interesting in this country that um, most of the um, people who need those protections are actually facing you know are, are whistleblowers in some areas of government <laughs> or you know um, whereas uh, just recently I was at a conference and if you look at other cases in America the protections are um, quite amazing you know um, but ma- mainly they're against sort of corporate whistleblower, corporate whistleblowers but there are huge protections in other countries you know what is it, without speaking on his behalf what is David hoping might what sort of changes in the law is he hoping for out of this well, I, I think that that Attorney-General's power, um, it's one-thirty of the Evidence Act to come in and do that claim and just redact all of the material, I think that's inappropriate. I don't think... I think, you know, we've got the Attorney-General out there going, I won't touch the case because mm. it's, um, you know, before the court. Next minute he's in court, he's intervening. The mm. other day he's intervening to take all the, you know, all the redacts, everything out. And, like, what? what that, that's just ridiculous. You're saying one thing and doing another. But um, that power should not be um, um, able to be used in whistle when the people are applying for the whistleblower defence. That just it's just ridiculous. Like because there's this other act, the National Security NSI Act, they call it, and um, that act exists so that when there are very sensitive matters of highly classified nature, which they're claiming are in, in these documents that none of us know, um, the NSI Act is invoked, and that can then mean the court can close, you know, can blacken the windows, do what they need to do, you know, the jury can't hear it sometimes. So that already exists. So it's just extraordinary mm. that this, that it, it's got, it's, and it was the same with Bernie Cleary, you know, I just think that, and I don't even know if that's constitutional, the ability to, you know, I won't get into that, but I just think there are some real issues with that power and him stepping over his mark into the judiciary, which is not his paddle pool. You know, he's already got three hats and um, he doesn't need a fourth. You know, that's the that's the independence that we really need to protect right now um, of the judiciary because 
the lines are blurred everywhere else. So we well, need to have one place people can go mm. where laws can be rectified. Well, I guess once someone waves that white flag, whistleblower flag, then it, it's almost like a whole new set of um, a whole new process needs to be enacted. Where, um, yeah. yeah, where like you said, that uh, the attorney general's office is at arm's length and they can't just sort of swoop in. Mm. Um, mm. Just before we let you go, Eddie, can you talk to how David's feeling at the moment? Oh, hard, yeah. It's very, mm. very... Um, the air is thick um, with um, kind of grief for our democracy, I think. Everyone in the courtroom, it's... Um, there were so many gasps and um, mm. sighs and people crying, not related to David at all. Like, just people... In, they were crying in the in the courtroom gallery because mm. everyone, we know what this means for all of us. It's, it's very frightening. And, um, look, I, I believe it's going to get rectified, but it's going to be a long process and David might have to be in custody for many years before mm. that happens. So that's, that's where my concern is. He's an amazing person. He's got two beautiful um, teenage daughters. You mm. know, this is just... Such an injustice. So, if anyone's anywhere near Canberra and they can, it's time to bear witness to this and get into the courtroom and give him some support, buy his book, donate to him, whatever you can do. Um, he needs a bit of a pat on the back um, and to feel supported because he's doing this for all of us, really. He's doing it for all of us. So, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Eddie, and for your no advocacy. Um, and if anybody wants to, to follow um, Eddie's tweets about the case, um, it's at Worlds on Fire, Worlds with a Z. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah and Eddie's yeah. Been, been providing some wonderful dispatches, including some extra pictures of Jakey, the support dog. <laughs> yes, we'll get some poo ones up there at an appropriate time. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eddie. Thank um, Thanks, Eddie. No Look after worries. yourself. Uh, it's Thanks for the interview. <laughs> our pleasure. Triple yeah. R. Charlie, um, <laughs> you wrote a great piece this week <laughs> about the weird and wonderful things that get sent to Prime Ministers. Yes, yes. Now, this is our attempt to... Um, not be that Matthew McConaughey um, meme of him dragging on the cigarette <laughs> <laughs> after, after a pretty heavy week. Um, yeah, so obviously last week I, I, I talked a bit about the, the fun little uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, documents that we'd received uh, revealing that someone had, um, by a slightly circuitous route, sent Scott Morrison some weed the week after the uh, the last election. Um and uh, so we ran that and, and that was fun. And then uh, a researcher, Daniel Casey from, from ANU, kind of gave, uh, sent me an email and said, oh, if you're interested in that, actually, I'm, that's kind of my area of expertise. I, um, <laughs> I love that that's someone's area of I expertise. I know. It's, 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 it's a wonder. It's like I didn't know I needed you to exist, but now you do. <laughs> um, and basically said that's, you know, I, 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 I research essentially the, 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 what we send our prime ministers, um, particularly his focus was on the Howard years. Um, and in amongst just the, the letter writings and the campaigns, you, you get a lot of kind of what he called weird shit that gets sent, the, uh, usually as part of campaigns. Um, there's, I mean, there's there's like, it's it's a funny thing. There's, there's the funny stuff. So there's like people funny or, or sort of, you know, striking things. A lot of, a lot of the, the most effective campaign, if you want to get someone 
attention and get it reported is sending lots of uh, menstrual products <laughs> to politicians. <laughs> if you want to make a point about um, gender equality, for example, Scott Morrison, back when he was immigration minister, got sent um, tampons because of them mm-hmm. cut them. The, the report that they had allegedly cut off the supply of, of sanitary products to, to refugees. But it happens to, you know, um, gov- te- the Texas governor, um, Greg Abbott, uh, and people like that. But there's other ones. Um, there was people being – people sent um, – there was a, a public servant whose job it was to open mail uh, who uh, Casey interviewed. And they said, basically, on their first day, they were shown, like, they're like, this is the bin. It's like, what's the for? It's like, it's for rice. It's like, what do you mean rice? It's like, we get sent a lot of rice. <laughs> um, so this was part of some They just was, throw it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, 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 they scan it and throw it away. You know, you can just job. rinse rice and put it in a rice cooker. Totally. Fine. Yeah. As long as it hasn't uh, I mean, already been this cooked, w- you can't reuse that yes. after a certain oh, amount yeah, of Also, this was around the time that people getting sent bags full of white powder was quite a serious oh, issue. Oh, yes, okay. Um, so they, they probably weren't going to take that risk because it was just rice. Unabomber yeah. vibe about it. I did. I, rem- I used to know, I, um, I remember talking to a uh, craftivist once called um, Tal-, Tal Fitzpatrick who sent uh, a quilt to um to uh oh my god my brain malcolm turnbull was the prime minister then i think it was about 2015 and um she'd it was called please prime minister and she'd got people all over the country to um create a piece of the quilt with um a message that they, that they wanted to deliver to the prime minister and it was kind of about how how little um, access everyday people have mm. for politicians, and um, and, then, <coughs> and then she turned it into quite a beautiful quilt featuring Malcolm, Malcolm Turnbull and his puppy dog, and <laughs> she delivered it to his office. And apparently, the lovely women in the office were like, "Oh, this is gorgeous!" And then they started reading it, and <laughs> her face kind of turned to stone. Oh, he's not going to like this. And they were just like very, very snippety after that. <laughs> well, I mean, it is the other, the other one, and uh, there is a sort of slightly sad element to this because the other. The other one that he talks about is uh, farmers at some point were very angry at, at Howard and they sent him their, their like, soiled shirts to, with, like, with, like, horrible rude words written on it because, like, you're taking the shirts off our back, literally mm. kind of thing. And, like, no one he spoke to – everyone remembered it happening, but no one remembered why. <laughs> so it's like this is the sad thing about the impact Ooh. these things actually sometimes end up having. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs> <laughs>